This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work, Session 4, Race and Education. In this fourth edition of the Doing Our Work series, Dr. Misty William, Julie Burke, and Wanda Hunter discuss the effects of systemic racism in North Carolina's educational systems. With that, again, thank you for being here, and I'm going to turn it over to Misty. There's usually thundering applause when I move to the when I move to the stage. Um, I want to say I appreciate you all being here um, this evening to this discussion about race and education. It's an important discussion, and I know that we appreciate the opportunity to engage um, and share our thoughts with you. Um, I know that many of you have participated in um, uh, previous discussions, and we hope that our presentations and our thoughts will add to the work towards solutions um, in this area. So I'm going to be clicking through, and I've been told to stay close to the mic, so I'll try to do that. Um, I come to this work understanding that uh, there's a history that shaped education. I have a timeline behind me in our, in our country, in our state, and in our district, and that's what I'm going to be uh, sharing out with you tonight. We won't have time this evening to go through uh, all of the events that shaped the landscape in our nation, in our state, and in our, our local district. But I will say that for me as a white person, um, I say as a white girl, I had to really come to an understanding that it was my responsibility to read and understand that history and what it meant to where we are right now. It's... Um, something that's really uh, important to me. I also come to this work with my own aha moments. They keep happening. One of those for me was that the discussion about race and education is a discussion about equity, uh, not necessarily equality. And that was a misunderstanding that I carried with me for a long time um, through my work. This is 24 years in education for me, um, but that I carried with me for a long time, and it's one that I had to put aside in order to move my thinking forward in a different way. Uh, This is my daughter. She hated this picture because it was her eighth grade picture. Um, And uh, she's she's 14 now. She finished driver's ed recently. Um, But I'm in this conversation because of my children. I have a son who's 26 and another daughter who's 23. And um, particularly in this conversation for this kid, the one I haven't messed up yet, right? Uh, You can laugh. It's okay to laugh. Um, And the potential that emerges from our conversations about about race and about her experiences. I remember after I read Nurture Shock, and if you haven't read that, I'd lift that up to you as an opportunity to learn more about raising anti-racist children. But after reading that book, I recognized the fact that I had never talked to my children about race explicitly. They could recite word for word what I thought about sex and what I thought about drugs, um, but not, not about race. And so I asked Kate one evening, I said, well, tonight you get to decide the conversation tonight. We can talk about sex or drugs or race. And she said, well, I'm not having sex and I'm not on drugs, but I deal with race every single day. 
And for me as a mother, um, having a 26-year-old son out in the world and never having that conversation with him, I called him up immediately and I said, do you want to talk about sex or drugs or race? And he said, Mom, are you okay? (laughs) What is happening? Um, So I started to pay attention to the things that I read and to the things that I heard, understanding that... um, that these conversations, that disparities and disproportionality and uh, racism uh, adversely affect her too and her experiences. And so when I thought about tonight, I wanted to frame my work and I called upon several public data sources. And so I wanna own up front, I'm an employee of Guilford County Schools, but I didn't use any access code or any login to look at any of the data I'm gonna share with you tonight. I simply, as a parent and as a concerned educator and a community member, went to these sites that are available um, to us. I want to share before I get started that I use African American where I created the slides, but where you see data slides from these public sources, um, there still is a reference to black students. Um, We know that as a district, we're looking more closely at how to report out that data more accurately because we know that um, those students that are encompassed in that black category don't necessarily identify themselves as African-American. And so we are aware of that. I love this quote, and it's true. Um, My hope is tonight that our discussion will help progress this conversation forward. And um, I also want to own something else. I'm modeling my own struggle. Um, When I used to see people talk about race, I would think, oh gosh, they've studied for so long. They know everything. They've read everything. And they're so polished and perfect. And I want to say to you tonight that if we wait until we're perfect, we'll never have the conversation. We won't have it in the boardroom, and we won't have it with our, with our own children at the dinner table. And so um, I, this will be imperfect. I'm not polished, and I'm not perfect, and I'm not an expert, um, but I am concerned. When I thought about tonight, I wanted to think about data from a national perspective, a state perspective, and then from a local school district perspective. And um, my goals for the evening are to stir up some um, questions. You're not going to leave probably with a ton of answers, but to stir up questions, um, to help us start to think about solutions, uh, to speak the truth, uh, which is uh, something I've learned from my beautiful friend, Monica, speak, speak the truth, and to add to our collective work. So... What you see behind me is a slide that is directly from um, a report that was prepared for our school district by Schoolhouse Partners, which is a consultant for Say Yes. Anybody heard of a little thing called Say Yes? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And it was prepared for us. um, Say Yes helps communities develop these pathways as milestones to post-secondary success and to create systems for analyzing data with regard to each of those pathways. I am really proud of our district. I don't know if you know this or not, but some districts, when they get to this point where these budget analysis and pathway reports are going to be created, withdraw from that process with Say Yes. We did not as a school district, and for that I'm really proud because we, we know that this report lifts up for us some things that we're doing very, very well, but it also confirms some areas of opportunity for us where we need to do better. Specifically, it notes that overall, 
our students of color are struggling with standardized tests, um, particularly African-American male students and our students um, with disabilities. Uh, it also lifts up, it's very transparent, it's a public report that was um, presented to our school board in October. It also lifts up that by the time students graduate, white students are seven times more likely to reach that college readiness benchmark on the ACT than white students. So when I was thinking about talking with you tonight, I wanted to look at these pathways and apply an equity lens to them so that we could think about what each of these pathways would mean um, for our students. I also wanted to think about these questions. And uh, Monica and I had a conversation about a year ago where we started to talk about um, why are African-American students behind? And I want to reframe that question and think instead about, well, why are white kids doing better? <laughs> Maybe that's where we can um, find the answers. And then finally, the question that I asked my daughter, um, and I'll tell you her response at the end of the, my time with you tonight, but I asked her, is it really better to be white if you're a student? And that's in our schools, again, in our nation, in our state, and in our district. So if we start looking at these pathways, we see first that kindergarten readiness pathway. The report lifted up several things to us. Basically that um, African-American students, when they enter kindergarten, are, are about as ready as the district as a whole. It did say that white students are a little more ready at about 75%, and um, girls are slightly more likely to be ready for kindergarten than boys. If you have, uh, I've raised a, tw he's, he's still alive at 26, so I know that boys are a little bit less uh, ready for that. Um, if we move to step two, so think about kindergarten readiness. We're almost the same as we enter. The research is clear about the fact that African-American students, uh, particularly male students, enter kindergarten as excited, uh, uh, energetic about learning as other students. If we look at step three in these pathways, we're looking at um, reading at grade level by the end of grade three, we begin to see that gap emerge. So um, as measured by our end of grade test for our third grade students, we see that 79% of white students are on grade level compared to 44% of our African-American and Hispanic students. We also see interestingly, and good for Kate, my daughter, that white females um, have the highest percentage at this particular grade level. We know nationally, according to Ed Trust, that um, by the end of fourth grade, African-American students and low-income students are already two grade levels behind, and by the end of 12th grade, they're four grade levels behind. If we flip that to my um, original question and say, stop asking why are African-American students behind, that we would say that white students are four years ahead of African-American students by the end of 12th grade. NAEP also shows this same trend. So I thought, well, let me look at that from a public data source. And so I went to NAEP, and all this is, is public. You can go and, and pull it up. And I looked at grade four reading at a national level. And we see that the gap there for African-American students, that scale score is 206, and for white students, 232, which is about a, a 20, it is a 26-point gap. Somebody told me I needed to work on my on my math recently. This is just um, represented a different way, and I put this in because it's compelling to me just to see the shift. And it shows, um, this is white student performance on the national um, test, 
and this is African-American student performance. I thought, well, let me look at just North Carolina. What are fourth grade students in just our state look like if we're taking this level by level? And the gap there was about 22 um, points lower for African-American students. It was 30 points in 1998. Now, somebody do the math for me. How many years ago is that? A bunch. I heard it. I don't know if it's right or not. Remember, I don't know my math. A long time ago, right? Um, it's, it's about eight points better than that now. I went to our state reading and uh, looked at the fourth grade reading EOG, and we see here that in 2015, we had uh, lowered that a little bit. I'm showing you two slides uh, for the state. One is grade level proficiency, which is a level. We have five levels in North Carolina now, and I need a much longer period of time to explain all that to you. But if we include our level three, fours, and fives, we're talking about grade level proficiency. Um, the gap there in our state is, about, is a little bit over 30 points for African-American and white students. If we go to Guilford County Schools and we look at grade level proficiency, it's almost at 36 percentage points. Again, public data sources, I'm not a statistician, I'm a concerned educator and a parent and a community member and just um, want to, to see, is this, is this correct? So if we summarize that, we see that in reading our national gap is about 22 points, our North Carolina gap is a little over 30 points, and in GCS, in our district, and I would venture a guess that um, we could plug other districts in and see some similar things, is a little over 35%. I then went to step three, which is grade five. So we enter kindergarten, we're all about the same place, we look at grade three, we look at grade four. Grade five, this um, pathways report lifted up that um, this was measured by grade five end of grade reading and uh, end of grade math. Uh, thir over 1,300 of the tw uh, about 2,500 students who scored a level one or two on the fifth grade reading were African American students. And a, a little over 1,200 of those 2,300 who scored at level one on the math were African-American students. We see that only 33% of African-American students were considered college and career ready based on these um, tests and si compared to 67% of white students. The report added some additional points to that and um, indicates that 63% of the students who met the benchmark in reading were uh, white. And in math, I asked one of my colleagues, what happened to math this year? Because I don't think either of those percentages look too good. But 39% um, of white students met the benchmark and only 11 of African-Americans. So you can see that this gap is persistent, um, whatever um, we're looking at. This is, our, this is GCS grade level proficiency. The blue is um, white students. This was for 2015. And the green bar is our African-American students. And this is for math in um, Guilford County for those fifth grade students. Again, the, the aqua blue is our white students and the green is African-American students. So then I thought, well, let me look at step five, which is post-secondary preparation course schedule. What this pathway looked at was um, our students, uh, the class of 2014, so the schoolhouse partners took the class of 2014 and they looked at the courses that they were enrolled in in high school to see are they 
are, are these students enrolled in courses that would advance them and give them post-secondary success? They use the UNC system requirements and the North Carolina Community College requirements to look at those, uh, those course schedules. They saw that in 2014, you can see the, um, the percentages here, about 92% of white students were on track and 82% of African-American students. 93% by the time they were in 10th grade for white students, 84% of African-American students in 10th. And interestingly, we'll talk about math in just a second, but interestingly, they found that for 151 of those African-American students and for 71 of the um, African-American students for science, if they could add a science or a math class, over 60% of the students who were not on track would have been on track. So when we think about prerequisites, this stimulates some other thinking for me. When we think about prerequisites or getting advanced courses at an earlier grade, it starts to make me think. You can see the on-track percentages as the, this uh, class of 2014 moved to 11th grade and 12th grade. And by 12th grade, what the report identified was that for African-American students, the um, math and world language were the largest barriers to being on-track for post-secondary success. So I thought, okay, let's keep moving in, this, in these pathways, applying this equity lens. Step seven was to complete the PSAT in 10th grade. The report that was presented to our Board of Education indicated that we need to do more work and more analysis of the PSAT by race and gender, and that reports by school should be analyzed. But we know in North Carolina that we require the ACT now. And we know that a minimum score on the ACT to, to be accepted into a college or university is a 17. And, um, and so I looked at ACT scores. These are reported out publicly on our state, our public um, school report cards. And when we looked at Guilford County Schools ACT proficiency, um, we see this was in 2014 when these children would have been in 11th grade. We see that 37% um, of our African-American students who took the, the ACT achieved that 17 or higher, um, when 80.4% of our white students achieved that same level. I looked at that in comparison to our graduation rate um, for 2015, which we know it's not a one-to-one -one analysis, but they were 11th grade in 2014 and graduating in 2015. And it's just compelling to me when I think about these conversations with my own child and with my colleagues that only 37% of that 88.1% had a minimum score on the ACT. So I moved to step eight. Is anybody tired? It's okay to be tired. It makes you, thank you for raising your hand. That's a great way to be recognized. <laughs> um, so I moved on to the, the next pathway, which talked about Algebra 1 and Algebra 2. We know now that's Math 1 and Math 2. You can see the percentages here. Um, students had to receive credit um, for the courses, and we see that uh, African-American male students are a little below that 90% of all students in 2014. What I thought about was this, and I'll tell you why I thought about this. My daughter was in eighth grade. She attends school in another district. She was in eighth grade and taking Math 1, what, we, what many of us would have known as Algebra 1. And I said to her one day, Kate, how many 
black students are in your Algebra 1 class, in your Math 1 class, and you know what she said? Zero. I was dumbfounded by this. I said, are you kidding me? And she said, well, it's the only class in the school. And I thought, oh, gosh, I've got to talk to her about how this is not okay. And I remember reading that nationally in 7th and 8th grades, African-American students make up about 16% of our students, but only account for 10% of students taking Math 1 in these grade levels. And, and further analyzed that about 1 in 5 white students end up taking calculus, if you think about scheduling, you've got room for that if you get Algebra 1 or Math 1 out of the way earlier. But only 1 in 15 African-American students. This is nationally. We also know that math is that gatekeeper course. Uh, this is an old um, report, but it's from the U.S. Department of Education. And it says that students who can take math, um, those advanced math courses earlier, are at a clear advantage. And we know that rationally. So I looked at math nationally, and we see, I'm going to scroll through these pretty quickly, but we see that, that national average right at 31%. We see that 22%. As we go forward and we look at eighth grade um, math and math one, we see that creep up to 32, almost 33 percentage points. And as we go to our district, it, it goes up to about almost 36, 35.6 percentage points for Math 1. In summary, we see that math nationally, there's a 31-point um, gap. In North Carolina, it creeps to about 32. And in Guilford County, this is for eighth grade math, about 37 points. And then in Math 1, we see pretty much that same pattern. So I said, well, let me move to another pathway, right? and apply that equity lens. So I looked at those AP and IB courses and college course credit, and we saw in our district that 29% of the AP courses that were taken were taken by African-American students, while 62% of those um, were taken, those AP courses were taken by white students. Um, I need to, to tell you that it was not a requirement for anyone enrolled in these advanced courses to uh, take the exam, and there was previously a charge for it. Uh, the state has since uh, taken that uh, financial burden away. And so going forward after this year, we hope that our data will say a little bit more um, about why that reason is. We see here the scores are represented um, by a subgroup, by the African-American. I don't know, my right from my left is on this side and the white on the other side. And the level one scores are um, red, level two blue, so forth and so on. What we see here in comparison is that about one in four of the AP exams taken by our African-American students resulted in a level three or higher, while about 63% of those tests taken by white students um, resulted in a level three or higher. We know rationally that disparities in course offerings means, mean that students are not getting access to those courses that they need to be prepared or to be prepared for a higher paying STEM opportunity, particularly when we talk about math. We also have to understand that there's a financial. Um, I think about my two older kids who went to college with a couple of semesters under their belt. So there's a financial advantage to that and a mental and emotional advantage to going in a little bit ahead of the game or feeling like um, you're a little bit ahead of the game. It, by the way, it helped one of my kids and the other one 
uh, went to Appalachian for about eight years. <laughs> I won't let, I forgot I was being videoed. Sorry, Will. <laughs> He's a great kid. Um, so I, I want to honor um, my colleagues, Tom. I'm going to go very quickly through these final slides. Uh, step 10 is an SAT of 1550 or an ACT of 23. These statistics are, are not okay with our district. Our superintendent has um, said that publicly. 89% of our African-American test takers did not meet that SAT benchmark. Remember, the SAT is not a, um, a student achievement test, but a predictor of how well students might do in college. And we know that if students have a 1550 or a 23 or higher, that they're more apt to do well and to persist in that first year. These are slides from a board meeting that um, we presented this information to our board in October. The purple line is white students and the red line is African-American students. The green is Hispanic and the blue is Asian. And that was um, SAT reading. This is SAT math. Sorry to be rolling. This is SAT writing. And this is compelling. This is our ACT college readiness uh, benchmark, and what you're, what you're looking at up here is um, in each part of that ACT, there's an English, a reading, a math, and a science. The purple bar tells what percentage of students in that particular group scored at the college readiness benchmark in all four. As a district, 18% of our students who took the ACT, um, this was for the class of 2015, scored at a readiness place in all four areas. 33% um, of our white students were in that place with four areas and only 5% of our African-American students. The uh, Schoolhouse Partners Report lifted up to us that this was um, an area where we could make some gains as a district and we recognize that. Um, Finally, high school graduation. This is North Carolina um, and what graduation rates look like in North Carolina as a state. The green is African-American and the blue is um, white students. And this is for Guilford County Schools. We see that um, we have a really high graduation rate and the report did lift up. That's an area where we're doing well. I couldn't not think about um, our, our referral process, we know that all of these pathways are very, very important to student achievement and success in post-secondary education, but they also have to be in school <laughs> to access um, the education that they're receiving. And we know that um, our students, our African-American students are being suspended at um, overwhelmingly higher rates than our white students, that they're being referred, suspended, and expelled, and often for the same or less serious offenses, and that's clear in our data. Um, this, Kate reminded me of this when I went to um, one of her plays, and I asked her at dinner after the play, Kate, why was there only one African-American student in the play? And she said, oh, mom, he's not in drama. And I said, well, I don't understand. What do you mean? African-American male. And she said, we recruited him to play the murderer. And I thought, I have to have this conversation with my daughter so that she doesn't begin to believe that, um, that this is okay. And to question that for herself. We know that um, uh, our Attorney General, Eric Holder, said, in short, racial discrimination is a problem. We know that. 
We know that in our district when we look at disproportionality, again from a board report that shows that African American males make up a little over 20% of our school demographics and about 48.7% of our referrals. And we are aware of that and, um, and are working on that. And all that to say, I ran through that and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what can we do next? And we have some initiatives that we're working on. Um, our district is committed to transparent discussion about what the data show and what we're going to do about it. And finally, um, I love this, this quote. It's from the Lion's story. Um, and I wanted to leave you with it because I think we've got to move to a place past tolerance. Um, we've got to, to move to a place of um, higher ground. And that's what I want to do, even when it's not perfect. I want to be courageous and, um, and have these conversations. I'm committed to continuing the conversation at the boardroom table and at my dinner table. Uh, ask Kate, so Kate, after seeing this presentation, do you think it's better to be white? And this is exactly what she said. She said, yes, but what I don't get is why. Um, we know that the work that we're doing begins in individual classrooms, and I know that Julie is going to share with us some of her work in that area. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Julie Burke. I teach teachers. Close your oh. I teach teachers at Guilford College, and um, throughout that process, my real mission is to um, facilitate the teachers to become very critical and conscious of the way that school systems have been created. Um, my strategy often, as you can imagine, meets with a lot of resistance, or not my strategy so much, but my content area. And while I certainly appreciate the work that Dawn is doing in the school system, much of what I might say here may counter that in pretty um, vivid terms. I don't consider myself an expert either. I think that um, talking and presenting and teaching and being with people causes one to be rather humble and also incredibly vulnerable, so I appreciate that you often reminded us of that and that we have to take these risks. So what I hope to do in this talk is to help us dig out of some of the structural privilege that dug us into this thing called the achievement gap. And as I've been teaching teachers for about 11 years and was myself a teacher for over 20, um, these ubiquitous metaphors that we use often camouflage or cover the realities that undergird them. And I think that's very true of the achievement gap. Um, Edward Said said that to be some, this is what I hope my students will be when they become teachers. This is what I'm really engaged with trying to promote, that they will be people who cannot be easily co-opted by governments or corporations, and in many ways, the school system is representative of both of those, in my mind. And whose sole raison d'art is to represent all those people and issues routinely forgotten or swept under the rug, or in this case, into the gap. 
So as I've been working with students who are often so resistant, and at myself, I didn't, you know, I came from a public school system. I went back to school as a single parent to a very elite um, school in the Northeast, where I finally was beginning to be taught to think critically. And then not until my graduate work did I really begin to understand some of the history and, and some of the null curriculum. We call that the curriculum that's been left out, that which is null. And I, too, had to struggle, as Dawn, Dawn mentioned, her own struggle. It's always a struggle to try to um, work through what Plato might call that aporia, that time when your mind is shifting and your emotions are high and your world is being shaken and actually it's, you are being asked to give something up, something you hold dear. And as a pedagogue, um, I really needed to be, and as a very, very um, energetic and passionate pedagogue when I first came into this business, I really wanted to almost radicalize my students and what I found was that's, that's not the approach to take. We have to work, we have to work up to this. And um, I come from a kind of an arts background. I was in dance and theater before. And as I was doing my graduate work and trying to grapple with these ideas, I thought to myself, aha, how about a picture book? Because we're constantly talking about, can I move away from the mic? Yes, <laughs> We're constantly talking about uncovering things. So I tried to make some things concrete. And I'm going to put this slide up on the board in just a minute. But I have this picture book which moves in various ways and has these sliding pieces that come out with the quotes of people that we often accept as the experts underneath. Because we, it, it's hard for people to understand what deconstruct means. So this was my method which may seem very simple and is certainly not expert or polished, but that's what I want to share with you today. Um, and in doing this, and it's interesting you talked about storytelling as well, Dawn, I, I quote uh, Simon, who's a historian. What might it mean to live our lives as if the lives of others truly mattered? One aspect of such a prospect would be our ability to take the stories of others seriously, not only as evocations of responsibility, but as well as a matter of course. And so as I was thinking of this image of the achievement gap, I kept thinking about, well, what is a gap? A gap is a hole. It's the space between my buttons. It's the space in my granddaughter's teeth. It's, a, it's something with, that we think there's nothing in, and yet there are stories. There are histories in that gap. And what we might be, th if we think about rethinking our questions, Perhaps we need to rethink about shaping that question about what do we cover up? What do we fill into that gap when we try to close it? So this is a, that first book. And in those little, it's this page. And you can see that underneath these objects, and this is a very naive piece, but underneath are my story, your story. People are in the edges. And these very good Samaritans are really trying to find out how to make these components fit back in. They're missing in the structure of society. So one of the pieces that we need to think about as we look at statistics, um, which I, you know, I understand, and I understand that I'm not trying to denigrate anyone's work necessarily, but offer up another way of thinking about this. I wanted to project. Um, I wanted this project of making and then reading the book to represent both the feelings of being awakened and the possibilities of hiddenness and the multiple 
the multiplicity of stories and, and of overlapping stories that are in that gap. And one of the things that we have to keep coming back to, and Don talked about reading, is who, who really is at the root of this manufacture of the achievement gap. And what we find is that many of the most outstanding psychologists, sociologists, and educationalists at the turn of the 20th century were also eugenicists. And eugenicists are people who study, uh, who actually created also the intelligence tests. Um, and have a clear sense of social control through genetic ma manipulations. G. Stanley Hall, one of the, f the founders of the child development movement, and for those of you who have studied in a more conventional way, there's a lot of information in G. Stanley Hall's work that we abide by today in terms of nurturing the child and paying attention to the child, and yet what he was really looking at was how to make the school system more efficient by how to, how to figure out who can work up to a certain level and who can't. So here's a quote from his work that you probably never heard in your studies of psychology. The great, many, the great army of incapables shedding down to those who should be in school for the dullards and subnormal children. And how was that mostly measured was by race. They used to have fitted, fitter family fairs and measure the whiteness of your genetic makeup. And um, this is a recurring theme. It's recurred over and over again, and it's certainly still in. So also, uh, Edward A. Ross, who was a prominent sociologist, one of actually kind of the founders of this school of sociology as a social science, wrote it's a very um, important book in the, in the early, very early 20th century, the turn of the 20th century, called Social Control. And this was a big theory of his, again, a eugenicist. Uh, mindset. And here in this quote, he's comparing these positive qualities of the Aryan to the less positive qualities of the Slav and the Hindu. Now, these are not, the Hindu may have been um, darker skin, probably the Slav was not. However, it's the same, it's the basis of where we're getting our testing. At least that is my sincere belief that the way the tests are constructed, the way these gaps are produced, um, is directly linked to this sort of um, mindset, for a better word. These were pivotal, pivotal experts, and often when we read about them in our courses, if I were in my regular conventional teacher course, I would not be hearing these aspects of their work. Bobbitt was one of the first, was the first professor of curriculum, and Thorndike is a very prominent educationist and also very closely related to psychology and kind of the forerunner of behavioralism in, in some ways. I'm hoping I'm right. Any psychologists, you may speak up, but um, it's also you know we link education and psychology very closely together, this scientific metric kind of way. So. Um, at the time of the progressive era, we were working really hard to make schools very efficient. And the way to do this was to figure out who would be able, who would benefit from moving on to higher education. And who could we say, okay, third grade is enough for you, fourth grade is enough for you, and use the eugenicist model to do that. And this was a time, you know, of industrialization, um, movement from the south to the north, all kinds of influxes of different people from different places, and 
there was this sense that we could make the school system efficient if we could figure out who was in that gap. And rather than close it, we could probably leave them down there. Um, we have a grave, grave, grave preoccupation with measurement and standards, which tend to commodify our students and turn them into resources. Is not, that's not necessarily an issue of race, but an issue, issue of capitalism. But, um, or super capitalism. But these are all connected. It's all connected to what, this, what we built, these st statistics and um, what the, how this gap was created. So what I strive to do in my education courses is to help young teachers raise cr critical questions, to locate the resources that were left out of their schooling and out of their lives to push them to the edge of the gap and to look down and to listen to what might be in there. This is my contribution. This is my activity. Um, because like Don, I think that education, I think that education is my calling and that this, I'm a concerned citizen. What I think we need to do is begin to just understand that something that is made from human uh, fallibility can be fixed by curiosity and motivation and awe and inspiration. And education includes the parts that are ugly as well as the parts that are beautiful. So one of the things we need to strive for, at least I need to strive for, if you want, for people who want to become educators, is to balance that incredible criticality that can lead to despair and, and paralysis with some kind of hope. And that can be seen as naive or sentimental, but I, don't, I think we have to somehow find a way to work with our students, to work with our, each other in a way that we are honest and forthright and, face, and have the difficult conversations, but also we generate some hope for transformation. So to me, this makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that I thought about in terms of policy in our linear world is if we thought, began to think of policy less as a, a linear um, metric and more of a mandalic metric where we could come together more clearly, and uh, there's levels to this mandala. But what Campbell says is empathy becomes border crossing, where educators within their multicultural contexts recount and or recover lost move moments in personal memories. And those are those memories, I think, that are in that gap that we want to cover up expeditiously. And I know it's complicated by social capital and, and who gets caught in the middle of a transition. But if we begin to think about, rather than closing the gap, actually opening up and letting those stories be part of the discussion, I think we may we may find another way to, um, to make things better, to rise up. Thank you. Hey, good evening. Again, I'm uh, Wanda Hunter, and um, let's see if we can push this in the right direction. And um, I'm really, I'm from Chapel Hill, but I graduated, both my husband and I graduated from Grimsley High School in the late 60s, 
just, just at the time when we were starting to get the idea in the society that black children could come into white high schools. That's what was happening. Um, so it's really good to be back here tonight to talk about racial equity in our schools. I'm also a member of a UCC church back in Chapel Hill, and so it also feels a little comfortable to be right here in this church, too. So I'm here to talk about something. Um, it's going to be the same, and it's going to be different. I'm going to talk about a community coalition that I'm involved with that is working for racial equity in our schools in Chapel Hill. So the others talked about an achievement gap, and that's where I'm starting, too. Um, you know, when we talk about racial equity, that's where our minds often go. Um, you know, Misty talked a lot about um, all the gaps. You saw all the gaps throughout, you know, in the data that's local, that's state, that's national, and it's in our schools, too. And so we often talk about the achievement gap. But we, we want to ask, our community is asking, is that really what it is? And so we have the same, yep. our data will look just like what you saw in the first set of slides. This is the Chapel Hill Carborough Schools last year, last year, this 2014-2015 data. And Misty talked about how there are different standards of testing. This is from the testing, and this is testing measured across um, both math and across reading. And um, so here we're looking at just basic grade level proficiency. We would want all of our children to be proficient at grade level, right? Um, but what you see here is that in our schools last year, 90% of our white students were proficient, only 42% of our um, African-American students, and uh, whoops, it looks like something. Let me see if I push this one more time. Whoop, there, and only 47% of our Latino students. So you can see really wide gaps there, larger than the ones that you were showing. 58% difference, 58%, it's not a difference between white and African-American, but our African-American students are 58 percentage points away from being proficient at grade level and similar scores for Latino. And then we go to the next level of the college and career readiness, and you see that that it looks um, about the same, maybe even worse. 85% of our white kids are doing well, but only 32% of our African-American kids are on a college career-ready track, and 38% of our Latino kids. And so we think, um, we think that this is a crisis. I mean, we think this is not acceptable um, by any stretch. And you know, one statistic that we dug up as we started looking at our data was that I think it was in 2011-2012, which was the last year for which we could get disaggregated data by race and by gender. At eighth grade, 85% of our African-American male students did not were not proficient in reading, 85%. And so one of the things that we do often is we flip race, and we say, if 85% of our white students were not proficient in reading at the end of eighth grade, what would be happening in our town? What would be happening? People would be up in arms. Superintendents would be fired. Everything would change. But that statistic came and went, and nobody even noticed it. 
So I just ask you to think, what does that mean that that could happen and we don't even notice it? We don't even think there's anything unusual about that. So this is just a like quick little graph looking at 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, often we talk about how things might be getting better. You know, it's going to take time. Things might be getting better. And so at the beginning of the graph, you can see it's 1994 and it goes all the way to 2015. Um, the top, the, um, the blue that you see um, at the top are, um, are, are, well, kind of purple, are white students. And then down at the bottom, the blue at the bottom are African-American students. And you see how wide that gap was back in 94. It's wider now. It's even wider. Same thing in math. So that's the achievement gap. That's what it looks like. As Misty said, it looks the same way in every town, in every district, in every state across the nation. It looks just the same. You, you can't go and pick a school system out, right? So we said, so that's the achievement gap. So we looked at something else. We've also been collecting data on discipline, and, um, and Misty showed some data on discipline, too. And we saw the same thing that schools see across the country who look at discipline data. Actually, we've been collecting this data for a long time and no one was even looking at it until a few years ago. But we as a community brought a concern about that um, because we thought that, that we were really concerned about the level of out-of-school suspensions and in-school suspensions that our students of colors were receiving. So we said, let's start looking at this data. So now we're tracking it by school, and every quarter we're taking a look at it. And, and because we are looking at it, there are a lot more efforts in place to really try to figure out what's going on. But um, you know, one of the things that we know is that African-American students are disproportionately, receive disproportionately higher discipline. So do Latino students. Um, and often, for we can go back and look at like what were the infractions that they were charged with, and we'll see for exactly the same infraction that an African-American student will get a much more severe punishment than a white student will for exactly the same thing. So we've been working on it. And what you see here, you see our data from um, 2012 and 2013 compared to 2013 and 2014, because now we're trying to track it and see if we're getting better. And green means we're getting better, and red means we're getting worse, but nothing is really changing a lot. So these are risk ratios that you see right in the, um, the far right column. And so you can see that even um, at the end of 2013 and 2014, for out-of-school suspensions, um, black students were five times more likely to receive out-of-school suspension five times more likely to receive in-school suspension. That got worse, and three times more likely to get an office referral. So things look inequitable in terms of discipline. So we looked at something else. Who is being placed or tracked into special programs? We talked a little bit about that, too. And when we look at the data on that, we see that there's disproportionate participation in academically gifted classes at the younger levels, in honors classes, and AP classes in high school. There's disproportionate participation in standard, which is what's not honors and AP. And we have teachers and students who can tell us that you can walk down the halls of our high school and you know if it's a standard class or if it's an AP class or an honors class by who's sitting in the classroom. You can just peek in the window and you know. And we also know that students of color are disproportionately placed into special education programs. 
So now, so we've talked about um, achievement, we've talked about discipline, we've talked about special placements. And so another thing that we've observed are just things that we would call racial incidents in our schools and the kind of responses that they receive. And the slide that you're looking at here, some of you may have seen this in the news because it got some publicity, but um, we call this the Confederate flag incident. It occurred at the end of the school year last year. One of our um, honors history classes was taking a field trip, they do this every year, to Gettysburg. They were up in Gettysburg and they did a reenactment of the Battle of Gettysburg. And after the reenactment, two white girls grabbed some from our schools, um, grabbed some flags, jumped up on a rock, and started waving the flags and took an Instagram photograph of themselves. It was instantly back in the school system immediately. And under this, you probably can't read it, but the girl that posted it posted, the South's gonna rise again. And a friend posted, just bought my first slave. It was back in our district immediately. So these kids are still on the field trip and this is, this is going all around the school. And, um, and so one of the things that we observed is just like what happens when things like this occur in our district. I, I've talked about disproportionate discipline and how behaviors of students of color are interpreted in really different ways from behavior of white students. Um, but when this happened, you know, what we observed happening was that as soon as the girls were back in school, of course, the, everyone was, you know, kind of upset about this and it was being talked about, but they were immediately pulled in and protected. Um, freedom of speech, good students, they were just joking around. They were, they were you know, they, they didn't really mean anything. And, um, and while I think that a lot of us in the community wouldn't have said that we wanted them to have a harsh punishment, we did think that it created an opportunity for some dialogue. <laughs> Um, and when people tried to even talk about it, like students of color who were upset, staff and faculty of color who were upset, um, basically the conversations were shut down, and um, and 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 it was sort of you know people wanted to make it go away. Um, it was suggested that the girl who posted it make an apology, and you can see here on the screen her apology. I'm proud to be a part of my state, and I'm sorry my photo was so offensive, but I find it appropriate in that I'm honoring heroes that fought to protect their homes and families. This was on an honors Civil War history <laughs> trip. So we say, we say that, that race and racism is not about a few bad apples, and we don't want to hold up you know, these particular girls as being you know, particularly horrible girls. And even the history teacher would say, this isn't what I was teaching. Like, this isn't what I was teaching. Like, I'm so horrified that they would say that. But we say that they are us. They reflect us. And that's what the conversation needed to be about. So when that incident occurred, you know, and, and we already had community members who've been meeting and meeting with the schools for years as part of like equity partners and equity teams because we've all known that we've had this issue. You know, I have a daughter who's going to turn 40 this year, and when my daughter was at the Chapel Hill Carborough schools, 
Um, we were talking about an achievement gap then. She's 40 now, so it's like we just keep talking about this, but we're not really getting anywhere. And so in our community, we came together and we formed what we call a campaign for racial equity in our schools. And who are we? We're just a group of community members. We're made up of, um, of students, teachers, um, parents, people who were parents, grandparents, um, you know, some people who are educators at UNC, some people who are um, racial equity experts, but we had, um, you know, we have, I don't know, 50 or so people who've been a part of this campaign. And what we say that, that unites us is that we recognize that we're dealing with more than an achievement gap um, and that we need a new analysis and some new solutions and we are motivated by a deep sense of urgency because we think this just can't keep going on year after year um, and we just accept it as if it's normal. So the Campaign for Racial Equity has done a lot of things and one of the first things we did was just really work on trying to get um, some school board members elected in the fall who we thought had a real concern for this um, issue and we were successful in doing that. But one of the other things that we worked on was developing a report. And so we developed, over the summer, all of us came together and about 30 of us worked on developing a report, bringing all of our, um, our, our hard work and our skills and our questions. You know, we had questions and questions generate more questions. And we wrote an 87-page report called Equity with Excellence, the Schools Our Children Deserve. And what do we do? We examine the quantitative data. So some of the data I showed you, but we have a lot of quantitative data. The schools already knew that. It's their data. <laughs> um, but, but we said there's more that we need to know other than this quantitative data. We really need to know what the lived experience of this is in the schools um, because their students, their teachers, their parents who are walking in our schools every day, and, and we want to know what this inequity feels like. So we organized focus group style listening sessions and we had um, I think more than maybe about 110 people who participated in listening sessions with us over the summer. We um, organized them in affinity groups by race because we felt like it would be more comfortable to talk about the questions. So we had questions about equity and um, you know what does it feel like? We had about five standard questions for each group. So we had groups of students, groups of parents, and groups of staff and faculty. We, and we um, had white, black, Latino, and we even have, we have a lot of Burmese refugees in our town, and so we even interviewed Burmese refugees. And one of the interesting things that we heard from the refugee population, and they have their own particular sets of issues, is that um, people who just arrived in our town less than a year ago can tell you what the racial what the racial setup is? They said we know whites are on top, blacks are on bottom, and everybody else is in the middle trying to get toward white as fast as they can because they know that's where the advantage and the privilege is. And they knew that despite their own problems, they knew what it was. And you know, and what happens in situations like that with um, Latino immigrants or Burmese immigrants is they try to distance themselves from blacks. Why wouldn't they? Because they, they know what the deal is. They know what's going on. So we learned a lot of things in our listening sessions. We also 
tried to do some research on schools and curricula that have an equity focus to see, you know, what are other people doing and what can we learn from other schools across the country? Because we know we're not the only ones facing the problem and we're not the only ones trying to work on it. And then we analyzed the data using what we would call a racial equity lens and we developed some initial recommendations that were based on this analysis. So from the listening sessions, these are all direct quotes, just representative quotes from the listening sessions. So the teacher says, there is a fear of courageous conversations on race and no support or time for them. So what she's talking about is we have, you know, so we've done training in our schools to try to um, help teachers, you know, in addressing the achievement gap, and they've had a curriculum on courageous conversations on race. Um, so one of the things we hear is that um, what she's saying, there's no, um, there's no support or time for these conversations, and we've even heard teachers say, like, we're not even sure what we're supposed to be talking about because we don't have enough understanding or analysis around race. Uh, a parent said, African-American parents are treated with disrespect starting at the front office. A high school student said, and this one I think is, is, you know, in some ways one of the most concerning of all, students internalize the stereotypes and they start to see themselves that way. So we analyzed all the data from the listening sessions and we came up with five key themes that recurred over and over again across all groups, whether they were white, black, Latino, um, whether they were parents, students, or teachers, um, and staff. So one was that they said within our district that there's an inadequate attention, knowledge, and understanding, and consciousness around racial issues. They talked about the impact of racial stereotypes and implicit bias. They talked about the ways in which the curriculum and the instruction reflect white cultural norms. They talked about the way that past efforts, because we've had a lot of efforts, we've had a lot of efforts over 20 or 30 years, have not been effective in changing outcomes or school climate. And they talked about poor leadership and accountability for equity. So that's our data, and so now I want to talk about sort of the way that we analyze the data. We started out by talking about what we know about racial inequities. So I think that the first series, the first in your series was Bay Love talking about the groundwater approach. Is that right? So, so we've had that presentation too, and um, you know, and we've done some um, work on that. And so, one of the things that we say we know are that racial inequities look the same across systems, and that the achievement gap is the same as racial disparities in health, disproportionate minority contact, etc. It's all it's all in the groundwater of our nation. And we also know that racial inequities are not a function of one particular institution like the educational system, that this is really important, that they're not a function of socioeconomic status or poverty. And we get real mixed up about that. And I have to say, I spent most of my life being mixed up about that, working in public health disparities of saying, well, you know, is it race or is it poverty? And poverty is really, really important, but of course poverty is determined by race, first of all. But even over and above poverty, race plays its own role. 
And we also know, and this is really important for schools, but for just about every other institution too, that these inequities that we're seeing are not a function of individual bad behavior or bad decision making. But in a way, that's the way we come at it all the time. So, you know, we want to give a student a mentor. We want to put our African-American students in parent university so they can learn how to be better parents. Um, you know, we want to come up with things to fix the people and we ignore, you know, and I think you all have heard that fish in the lake analogy too. You know, we want to fix the fish and we don't recognize that there's, that the fish are in toxic water and we're not looking at what we need to do to clean up the water. So if it's not all those things, so this is, this is our analysis, if it's not all those things that we said it's not, what is it? Why do racial inequities exist? Um, and this is going to get a, a little bit to some of what Julie was talking about. Um, and we say we need to get to the root of the problem. We've just talked about the groundwater. You know, and these roots are being nourished by the groundwater. And the groundwater, we say, is a culture that's, that's grounded in the racial history and belief systems and norms and standards that were created from this history. We have a very particular history in this country around race. And when we desegregated schools, you know, back in the 60s when I was here in Greensboro, we weren't integrating schools and we were not even really trying to account for the what had been produced by the history that got us there anyway. Um, you know, and we weren't desegregating these schools voluntarily. We weren't doing it voluntarily. There was a lawsuit that occurred in Greensboro. And so what that tells me is that there's still a strong belief system that is supporting the way things were. And in some ways, we've never really dealt with that belief system. And, and as Julie was showing with some of the um, you know, education luminaries, the people who founded the public school system, who founded our work in child development, who founded our IQ things, they were all people who had a strong belief in white superiority and the defectiveness of other races. They were, they were eugenicists, basically. And so this, you know, this is the history out of which our institution has grown, and we've never really even looked at it. We don't really know our history very well. And we also talk about the fact that, um, you know, in the business world, those of you who are in the business world may have heard this statement that culture eats strategy for for breakfast, and some people say culture eats structure for lunch. And so what do we, we mean by that? So we often, when we have a problem in an organization, a school system, but a business or anywhere, we try to fix it by coming up with a law or a policy. We write some new rules. Um, 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 someone I know said that you can tell how dysfunctional an organization is by the size of their personnel manual because because if things aren't going right, people you know, want to try to correct it by telling you what you ought to be doing. But we know that if the culture, if the culture is what it should be, you're not going to be having these problems. You're not going to need all that enforcement. You're not going to need all those rules. And I, um, I often use, because I came out of public health, um, examples in public health around smoking or about seatbelt, you know, where we've had some great success in public health where we saw a real cultural change. So when I was growing up, smoking was perfectly acceptable. <laughs> you know, every, it was part of the culture to smoke. 
And, um, you know, and at some point, people started to get the idea that smoking wasn't a good idea, um, but, but the culture was still to smoke. And then so we passed some laws and some regulations. But over time, you know, with continued campaigns and to try to change belief systems, we've, kind, we've finally reached the place where belief systems around smoking have changed so much that now we enforce ourselves. We enforce each other. You know, we, um, you know, not only have we changed our behavior, but with seatbelts, like I can get in the car and my granddaughter can say, Grandma, remember to put on your seatbelt. She doesn't need a law. It's in the culture now. But it wasn't in the culture when I was growing up. And culture can change. And culture is just critically important. So what is culture? You know, we say culture is a mix of attitudes, actions, and beliefs that guide the way we do things. It's just the way we do everything we do. And so we say there's a culture in schools, you know, that we have a culture in schools that grew out of our very specific history around education, around who education was meant for, around who we thought were the students who were the best and the brightest and the ones who were defective. Um, and, and all of that sort of, you know, we use that to justify, um, you know, all of the laws that we had that enforced a racial hierarchy. And we say that culture is a culture that we haven't really addressed. And so even now that culture is shaping our expectations of our students, of the history we teach and how we teach it. And I enjoyed learning that new term about null history. <laughs> is that what you said, null history? No curriculum. So, so the things that we don't teach, um, um, our beliefs about gifted education and who's gifted, you know, who will play football and who will play lacrosse, um, the meaning we ascribe to student actions, um, the racial differences in our regard for parent input, um, even how we pay and reward our employees. So we say that, you know, equity goes all the way into our employee system. It goes into our budget, goes into our regard for custodians who we think should be getting benefits, um, you know, who we might put on a contract so we don't have to pay in, um, benefits. That's all part of racial equity. It's all part of our culture. And so we, we say, so with our report, we said, you know, we've been coming at this with program after program after program, but what really needs to happen is we need to address the culture of our district, the culture of our schools in order to get true racial equity. And, um, you know, and, and Albert Einstein is famous for saying we can't solve the problem with the same thinking we used when we created them. And I think that we keep doing that over and over again, and we know that we need to think outside the box. So just real quick, I know I might be running close to time, but so real quick, so you might wonder, so we wrote um, a report and we have many, many recommendations, but, but just sort of to get cut to the chase, um, our, our recommendations are really based around creating a culture of racial equity. And we say that the first step is that we need a commitment from our leadership to examine our current culture with a racial equity lens. And we have some questions here. Just We start out by asking, how has the culture of our schools been influenced by our history? Um, how do our assumption structure and the practices in our school system continue to benefit or advantage white students and their families? And that goes back to what Misty said. Like, we think that 
that we're getting the results that we want. We're getting the results that we were created to get, and those results were to have everything work the way our white families want it to work. And we're a very liberal, progressive town in Chapel Hill. We just pride ourselves on that. So no one's about wanting to oppress some people, but white people are really about wanting to have what they think that they need and what their kids need. And so we also want a commitment from leadership to a growth mindset regarding racial literacy. And um, this is a little bit of a coming back at the district because we talk about a lot about a growth mindset in our district and how you know we need to be educating our children with a growth mindset. But we think the idea of a growth mindset, which is that we can always grow and learn, applies to all of us, including us adults. And that, and that we're a pretty racially illiterate nation and that we don't even necessarily have the same definitions around race and racism. We don't have a knowledge of our racial history. We don't even know very well the impacts that we're creating. And we think it's really important that we all engage in that learning if we're going to have an equitable school system. And then coming with that, we want to develop and implement a long-range plan that's designed to change the culture, and we think it's really important to have commitment and accountability around that. So that, that's sort of the crux of what we've recommended, and then um, I've got much more, but we're running out of time, but I'm just listing here that we've got seven areas that we identified, because when we're talking about, we, you know, we want to say when we're talking about culture, we're not just talking about achievement. We're talking about all of these areas, access and inclusion, our personnel, our curriculum, our discipline policies, how we allocate our resources, um, um, how we treat our community and accountability. And, um, and so if you're interested in our report, I can get um, the link to any of you. But I thank you very much for letting me come and talk with you tonight about what we're doing in Chapel Hill. We're just, we're just kind of learning, um, you know, and going, I won't say by the seat of our pants, because we think we know we've got something to go on, but um, we're trying to create a new path because we're not happy with the outcomes we've been getting. So thank you very much. Sounds like y'all have figured a lot out. Thank you. Time for questions, and we're going to try and pass the mic around so we can hear your questions. Uh, there are a lot of people in the room, so please keep any any questions or statements as brief as possible. One, uh, who is your group? How big is it? And who was this report? And who was this report given to? So, um, so our group. So we say that the campaign is not a closed group, it's a growing group. The people who worked on the report, um, I think the signatures on the report are 30-some people who actually worked on it. Then there were another 100 or so people who participated in listening sessions. Um, interestingly, we had some staff and faculty who worked on the report who wouldn't let us put their names on it because they were afraid of, of reprisal in the district. and. Um, so it's so it's it's a growing group, and we have a leadership team. Um, we call them the core organizers. There's seven of us who are the core organizers who get together to make quick decisions when um, we need to make decisions. And so we talk almost weekly, but we have a monthly meeting of the campaign, and we get together and we we basically have been working sort of through a set of actions. We decide what our strategy is, 
and um, and then and then we implement it. And so this year, our strategy was to um, recruit and elect school board members to um, write the report, to ask for a special meeting with the school board to hear our report, because we think they're the representatives of the community and that it really has to start with them. Um, they denied us when we asked for a special session. The board in the summer denied us, but after we elected a new school board, um, we went back and asked for the special session, and we had, and we had a special session. <laughs> And when we asked for the special session and we delivered the report and it looked like, you know, it wasn't going to receive a lot of attention, we had a press conference. So we had a press conference and we released our report and we said we've asked for a meeting with our school board to talk about this report, but they've told us no, but we're going to ask them again and we're going to, you know, and we've got some elections coming up and so... We elected a school board that we think are much more favorable, and on January 14th, we were able to present our report to kind of a standing room only audience, and next week, the board has a retreat, and our report is going to be part of what they're talking about in their retreat. Who's got the mic? There you go. Uh, Dave Wills, I'm a school teacher at the Academy at Lincoln here. I'm a part of the VSM program. I've got a lot of thoughts swirling around. I'm going to try to briefly compress them into a question. Um, when uh, I teach in the VSM program, which stands for uh, Very Strong Needs, this is the top 2% of students from all across the county, and they bust them in to me, and I teach them social studies, eighth grade. Uh, and we were meeting to talk about our objectives in the VSM program, and one of the, one of the uh, descriptions of the VSM program was, uh, and this was from Guilford County Schools, was creating an atmosphere where it's acceptable to be smart. And I was like, ew. Because that... My school is two different programs. We've got VSN, and then we've got other students who are there for other reasons, performing arts or global studies, or they're just in the district. And so it kind of set up a, a wall. And um, I like what you said about not asking why are black students behind, but asking why white students are ahead. And so I remembered something in my training for academically gifted education about a culture where black students are afraid of appearing smart because it's not black. They're acting white. And I remember hearing that, and I kind of had that same grading feeling, like, I don't like that idea. I'm sure maybe that happens a little bit, but is that something that we are kind of, instead of owning it and, and as white people and trying to figure out a solution, is it kind of us passing the buck and saying, oh, black students are like that because they don't want to act white? I mean, even our own president in his famous 2004 address at the Boston uh, DNC mentioned something like that. And I just... I wonder what you guys thought about that. I think that's a great question. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And I, I don't know the, I'm sorry, microphone. Oh. I do love the mic. I think that's a great question. And if, um, if anything from tonight's conversation, I also have to say, we didn't practice or really share out our information with each other, and so I'm so happy with the way things kind of flowed. Um, what I think is wonderful is that you're thinking about it and that you're interrogating, you're interrupting. Um, my friends will be happy I use that. You're interrupting that conversation in your head with something else, with an alternative conversation. 
And um, that's what we say when we do uh, equity leadership training in our district is we talk about interrupting these ideas that we have and saying, wait a minute, or these ideas that we've heard or that we've read or sound bites and really thinking through, can that, can that be true? Is that really what this means? I mean, I'm, I, I'm thinking about this as well, and one of the things that um, strikes me is not so much are we, I guess we being white people, when we say we here, we're talking about white people, I suppose, um, are passing the buck so much as we're not maybe recognizing how white the school is and what it means to try to um, resist, because it is, we've all said it tonight, uh, a white system. So how else do you resist a system that um, negates your negates your history, negates your story, than not to not to be co-opted by it. And when you're co-opted, that's when you make your good score. So I think it's a complicated. That's not it, but that's part of my response to your question. I agree with what both of them said, and then the other thing that I would say is that um, you know, one of the things that we say in our analysis is that when something comes up that we should ask why five times. We should ask why, you know, why would, why would that be the notion? And then once you come to that answer, then and why would that be the notion? Because, you know, and so I think that what, you know, we're grappling with in our town is to think like, how has our history and culture even shaped even shaped that scenario where acting white means that you know being smart means acting white. How how has our culture shaped that? And then and then for students who don't want to act white, like what does that mean about finding your own identity in a place that's so overwhelmingly white? So it's it is a great question to explore. Good evening. Uh, my name is T. Diane Bellamy Small, and what I would, first of all, like to suggest is a couple of books. One is called Kill, Kill Them Before They Grow, Michael Porter. And then I would also suggest that you uh, Google Kunjufu, Jawanja Kunjufu, and go back and read his book on countering the conspiracy against black boys, uh, black students, middle class teachers. Uh, to, to your question over here, sir, uh, a book is uh, called, that he wrote is called To Be Popular or Smart, The Black Peer Group. So I would suggest that you go back and read these books. Uh, but I also want to say, I think you're looking at this uh, from a, uh, well, I want you to look at it from my perspective. Uh, I spent nine years in segregated schools, three years in desegregated schools. My foundation was in segregated schools. And I know that I was the top of my class. I think you need to talk with those of us who went to segregated schools and see that, in fact, our education was excellent. It was not substandard. It was excellent. And we were taught to try to live in this dual society of being black and American. And we didn't miss any beats. We graduated, I went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I graduated in, in 1974. You do the math on that. Okay, so I think that 
if you could spend some time talking to those of us who, who either were teachers in the segregated school system or who were students or products of the segregated system, you will find out that we are capable and always have been of achieving. Somewhere you're missing the boat as to who is teaching our children and how they're teaching our children and how they recognize the talents and gifts that every child brings to the table. Thank you. Thank you. And I would ask you, Diane, if you would e email those book titles and authors to me or to Michelle, one of, so we could get those to everybody. That would be great. If you Google him, you'll get those books. The other one is Kill Them Before They Grow by Michael Porter, who was a Kanjufu uh, uh, mentored him. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Ms. I think one of the things that's null in our curriculum in teacher ed is what actually the destruction that took place during desegregation. Thank you for saying and, that, because that's uh, what it was. The, so it's, that's what it was. <laughs> And it's left out. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, you know, I appreciate what you said so much, and we actually did hear that from grandparents and parents who we talked with. And just so, you know, to think about, like, you know, why were segregated schools better for black kids? And I, I hear that all the time. It's because you're in a school where people believed in you, valued you, knew how brilliant you were. Um, but what happened in our districts, so that's why we say we have to go back and look at our history. So when we desegregated Chapel Hill schools, this is just a common story. Um, well, no, it's really not that common because not everyone knows it. But, but we brought two schools together. One was the black school and one was the white school. But what happened was Chapel Hill High School, which was the white school, the new school was called Chapel Hill High School. Lincoln Center went away. Um, the principal of Chapel Hill High School was the new principal the principal of Lincoln became the assistant principal. Uh, the coach, the coach of the black high school, which who was an award-winning, won all the division championships for his team, became the assistant coach. He couldn't even be the coach. He was the assistant coach. So right away, we created a racial hierarchy. We brought kids into a school, created a racial hierarchy, and told them who they were compared to their, their white um, Peers, and so, so how can we expect there to be equity when we created inequity? We say that children aren't at risk. We make we make them at risk. We bring them into our system, and we make them at risk by bringing them into a, a white system which still has the same mindset it always had. And now black kids are having to walk into this every day. It's like walking into poison water. I have just got a quick question. Um, the what troubles me about about all this? I'm not an educator. I'll put it out there where I'm just a regular person. Okay. <laughs> but all right, I we see. Okay, I see in the news, and I think it's increasing the number of of really offensive incidents involving high school kids, okay? If you didn't see the latest one with the letters stretched across the group of girls for their senior picture. I mean, this is not out of the ordinary, okay? Kids, and, um, and I hear a lot about we're having dialogues, we're having dialogues, we're having dialogues. My question is, are we having dialogues with the right people? Because kids, to, you know, they, they have access 24-7 to more information than we, than we ever did. You know, they're not, um, so obviously they're listening 
to someone else, okay? And when we have to go above, you know, to the leadership to, for, to be a top-down, to make a change, who's talking to the leadership? Who knows that they are not reinforcing these issues? And um, I guess my question is, what concrete actions are being done? Um, because if the dialogues are voluntary, you're always talking to the converted. Okay, so what do you do when you have entrenched uh, racism in your leadership and who's confronting them? Can you do sanctions? <laughs> okay, um, well one of the things I think the problem with some of the testing that we're doing, well I think it's going to sound a little conspiratorial, but um, we're distracted from the conversations by the emphasis on closing the achievement gap and getting our scores up. So I think that's one tactic that's used to repress those opportunities because the conversations take so much time and they're risky. So also we live in a very, in a very fear-based, if you're in a school today, it's filled with fear. Um, so, but I, I was meaning to pass this Okay, so um, you ask about concrete um, things that we're doing, and I'll just say we're in the beginning stages, and I will be completely honest about that, but um, for the past two years, we have worked uh, very closely. I've had an opportunity to work closely with our diversity office to start to work with our leadership in our district, and we have graduated two cohorts of equity leadership. And um, they were voluntary, um, co well, in some cases, they were voluntary participants um, in the cohort and where we had these kinds of conversations and we looked um, at the history and, and we uh, divided into affinity groups and talked about issues and came back together and wrestled with those. And so we have started that. And, and now our work is moving toward having those equity leaders in our district established so that they can, I'm part of that group. I'm the person who's here having this conversation. Um, and to establish those people across our district who can push each other in that place and um, to provide opportunities to, to discuss these issues in a safe, um, open, open way. The other thing that we've done, and it'll sound small, but um, we have um, over 10,000 employees in our district. I'm not HR, so I know I'm being videoed, but don't anybody quote me on that. Um, but about 5,500 of those are teachers. And each year when we do our orientation for new teachers, um, they come together in a big orientation. We hire probably about 400 teachers a year, either new to the profession or new to Guilford County. Maybe they have experience in another area. A couple of years ago, we just had this kind of brainstorm that we ought to be um, mandating that those folks who are entering our district engage in diversity and anti-racism training as part of their orientation to lift up that this is a priority for us as a district. We, we know we are not where we need to be as a school district and um, to have that as part of their entry. And so we started that and I'm really proud of the fact that we're going into our third year. Um, every single orientation for any teacher who uh, comes with us involves our diversity office and, um, and some training on that to begin that conversation. So we're starting. 
um, at that here in Guilford County. A few years ago, back in the eight, late 1800s, there were thriving uh, African-American uh, societies, economy, and so forth in several North Carolina cities, particularly Durham and in Wilmington. Uh, I lived in Durham for a while, and I became aware of the success that the Durham Black Society had there, the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company, and a few other businesses. And a few, a few years ago, I read a, a series in the Raleigh News Observer about the race riots in Wilmington in the 1890s. It appears that they were to say, a very successful, very thriving black community in Wilmington in the 1890s, and there was a white race riot that destroyed community property, arrested people, practically ruined the black society in Wilmington at that time. Now my question to the Chapel Hill lady is, with respect to a racially literate curriculum, is information of that type now being included uh, in the curriculum of the, in North Carolina history? Because I didn't know about it until I became an adult. Um, so I, I can't say for sure, um, but it's the kind of thing we think should be included. You know, we don't think there is enough about that. You know, we, we don't think that we, we know our history well at all. And so one of our um, recommendations is that we go back and look at, at our history curriculum and what we're teaching kids and really what we're teaching them about who they are and what the country, you know, what our country is and what our country has been and people's place in their country from the time they enter kindergarten because um, because we think that children from the time they come in they're starting to develop an identity about who they are and that and that that's the kind of history that's really important for us to know. I know there's a documentary about that that uh, the race right you're talking about in Wilmington. in Wilmington it's going to be shown at the Haytai Center in Durham on Friday night it's called is it called Wilmington burning or Wilmington I, that's the wrong place I think it should be more meaningful to white students well it, it, um, it, it's, it's going to be shown in lots of places but I know that in my community it's, it's going to be shown there but you're absolutely right that you know and when we try to segregate black history as if black history is separate from all of our history into one month of February. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it also, like everything we do, we say this is part of our culture and everything we do sends a message about who we are and who's important and what is just um, sort of a, a side culture. So um, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I don't know what's in, you know, I know that a lot of our history books are coming out of Texas. <laughs> um, and so and so they're terrible. But I, you know, I think that this is something where we as citizens, you know, all of, of us as citizens, these are our children, our future, and we all need to get involved and like demand something different, demand something better. And I think there's nothing better for children than to know the truth. Um, we all we all need to know the truth, and I think that um, you know we've all grown up having a real distorted view of, of who we are and how we got to be this way. Hi, I'm Byron Gladden. I'm coincidentally running for school board district seven, but I'm not here as a candidate. I'm here as a melanin man, so to speak. I'm depressed my way in the rain. Okay, here we go. My question is really to. And people have touched on it. This information is so powerful, it's so overwhelming. I've gone through the Racial Equity Institute workshop with Dana. So you talk about a lot of Kleenexes. <laughs> they're, they're great, Monica's here. 
but really, how do we begin to un unpack this in terms of as far as leaving the room? Because a lot of us feel very overwhelmed to share this information, and the white friends that I have, they own their white privilege. You know, they, they're, they're not in denial of it, and they deal with their biases, and we can really have an authentic conversation. But to our communities, to our constituents, uh, one of the things that we're taught in that workshop is that you need to really sit with this. You know, don't go home and tell mom and dad that you're inherently racist. You know, don't go home and have those type of conversations. So how do we start to unpack this? Because I don't even go to the movies in the rain, but I pressed my way here to tonight because I really want to learn. Thank you, thank you. Because I really want to learn how, how do we unpack this without offending or shutting somebody down or, you know, condescending or putting someone down, but to really build with that and leave this and leave this room. Is there a work, you know, a workbook? Is there ongoing dialogue? Any suggestions? Are we going to meet again? I'm just asking. And I, I, I said it in jest, but I really mean it. I would love to know folks who are interested in getting something going here in Guilford County, similar to what they're doing in Chapel Hill Carborough Schools, uh, and to find out what is already happening and uh, where do we need to really focus some, some very serious attention. I think Misty. I was, yeah. I do love the mice. Will it not reach? Oh, um, no, I think that's not equitable if it won't <laughs> if it won't reach me um, so what I'll say is I, I'm it's my struggle too and um, so so what I'm committed to in my personal life is the conversations with my kids that's a it sounds like a very small thing I learned early on with my children not to ask what did you do today because the response you always get is nothing and so now I say what was the best thing what was the worst thing what was an issue of inequity and what did you do about it and my 14 year old answers that question every night at dinner and um, she better come up with something because I know she did not spend the whole day in her all-white math one class and not and not see an issue of inequity and in my work um, it's small things any any project team any process any policy we we apply an equity framework to that and equity lens to that and we go through questions step by step we don't trust ourselves that we've asked those questions along the way we write them out and map out the responses and um, those are two concrete everyday things that I've taken away from this work and I'm, I'm in my infancy here right I'm just learning about this. You're supposed to say you look very young. That's right. But, so those are just two things that I take away and two things I do on a daily basis. Well, so just to add to that, so in Chapel Hill, so, um, so the Racial Equity Institute taught me everything I know, too. And I, and I, you know, I, I think I've been about 40 times now, literally about 40 times. And we've had about 50 workshops in Chapel Hill in the last five years and about 2,000 people have come. And so for us, it has just been critical in our community because, you know, and I just want to, for people who haven't been, I really want to recommend this. There is just no better training out there than these two days, but we say you need to come and you need to come back and you need to come back. So we say, you know, so what we work on in terms of, of our work is trying to, what we say is like, you know, continuing to grow our analysis, our understanding, our analysis, our, you know, 
uh, our knowledge about history because there is so much we don't know. So we want to learn, learn, learn. But then the most critical part is that we really want to do it together because we say it is part of white culture to go out individually and think that you can do things by yourself. Um, we say that doesn't work, you know, and that nothing is going to change unless those of us who are really committed to, you know, growing our understanding, our analysis, and our commitment to this area work together. And we find that, like, over time, you know, so we have caucuses, we have a lot of work groups, so we have a similar coalition to the one in school. So this school thing has grown right out of the racial equity workshop. That's what it's grown out of. We have a very similar one on law enforcement, so they've done very similar things. Um, you know, so we have groups that are forming and meeting, and we say, like, once you've done this enough and you're in the institution, then part of your job is within the institution, you work where you are. Like, people say, where should we work? Like, you're in a church, work in your church. Racism's in the church. It's in, it's in the UCC. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's in every institution and in that we all have a responsibility as we learn and grow and feel like we're, you know, getting some feet under us to have some idea about how to move. We start to move, but we don't move on our own. We don't move without other people because, you know, we're all really developmental and we need to kind of check things out, you know, before before we step out and, and cause more harm than good because um, white people have been doing that for a long time. But. <laughs> I was just going to say basically what was just said in our institutions. As a teacher educator, that's my way of doing this work. And as people who are interested in education, you may or may not know how under fire teacher education is in terms of its value and its worth. And that all social foundations have pretty much been wiped out of at least many state programs. And um, so that kind of action in terms of knowing those kinds of things might be helpful in terms of when the legislature comes up with those issues. But yeah, working within your institution, making it part of your what you do. Thank you. And I'm going to suggest, if you can, if you've not left your email and you're interested in pursuing this in the schools, we clearly need more conversation around this and more action. So if you have not left us an email, please do that. We will send something out. Um, and I want to suggest if you can stay for a few minutes back in the corner by the piano back there to, to just see who's interested in it and, uh, and exchange some contact information. And I really want to thank our, our, our three guests this evening for their amazing and very When our two daughters were in public schools, and, and one in particular in elementary, later elementary school, there was a lot about character education at that point. And she came home and, and started talking about it. I said, well, tell me what's going on. What is character education? She said, that's when they come and put posters up in the school. <laughs> and that's not to, to slam teachers in any way, but to say, obviously, what we need to do is far more than putting up posters. We have a lot of work to do, and thank you all for helping us uh, gain some more clarity about what that work might look like. Thank you all. Come back next month. <laughs>